Welcome to The Thought Locker, a podcast that enables personal growth, particularly in the world of real estate, personal finance, and reducing our carbon footprint. I'm Andrew Duncan, and I believe positive individual change is the key to making the world a better place. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. Today I am here with the wonderful Jenny Teavers and we are talking about tips or advice, um, strategies to help you maximize your chances of getting your mortgage application approved. This is a podcast that we've been wanting to do for a, a good long time. It's been a while in the making. Jenny is my personal mortgage advisor and in my humble opinion, one of the very best around. So I think you're in safe hands here. How, how long have you been a mortgage advisor for now, Jenny? Uh, this will be my 23rd year now. So uh, quite a long time, 19, November 1997. So yeah, going so you, way back now. So you've seen it all. You've seen good markets, bad markets. You've seen high interest rates, low interest rates. Yeah, I've ridden the roller coaster <laughs> several times. Yeah. And uh, what's been great, actually, just over the last kind of couple of months, I've had clients come back to me where... I did their mortgage like 18 years ago and they've come back to me and then another one was like 15 years ago and yeah, so yeah, there's certainly, I'm around for the long term, so yeah. That's the thing with real estate, you've got to be around for a while to, to have repeat business because people don't move that often, so you, no, you've got don't. to stick at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thanks so much for having me on, Andrew, and I just think that it's just such a great opportunity to give your listeners information i've been listening to other podcasts and it's all about people want information but they don't know where to get it from and i think just here's a really good platform you're providing a really good platform for your listeners just to get information that's the goal that's the idea yeah let's kick into it jenny so we've you've got some tips that you, that you want to run through for our listeners so yes. for anyone out there who is soon to be making a mortgage application or you just think that's going to be happening down the track for you um, you can you can save these you can set these aside and know that they'll be there for you when you need them but let's run through them what's what's first on your list yeah well first on my list is actually doing a bit of a disclaimer so I need to Perfect. really say that a copy of my disclosure statement is available on request and um, free of charge and also to that obviously what we're discussing here is kind of tips and advice around improving the the chances of getting your loan application approved but obviously any loan application is subject to a bank's normal lending criteria so it all has to be you know we have to have a full application with supporting documents submitted and then it will be an answer from there so this here is just to kind of give you some good advice on what might make your application look really attractive to the bank yeah based on your experience and what you've seen but but certainly that's a a good thing to good message to to put forward that it it doesn't guarantee acceptance yeah that's right yeah and I think I so I one of the key things I'm seeing at the moment and which really seems to let people down is their account conduct I've heard you use that phrase before. What what does what do you mean by account conduct? Well, what I mean by account conduct is obviously you've got money going in and money coming out, and what you want to make sure is that there's enough money in the account before the money goes out, so that you're not doing those going overdrawn. So when you get that little OD by the number, and um, 
or it goes into red uh, print. Uh, so you just want to make sure that you're not going overdrawn, if, especially if you haven't got an overdraft facility. Now, a lot of people have got an overdraft facility. It might be 500 to to $1,000, and maybe just before their pay goes in, they might go overdrawn a little bit. And the bank's okay with that because you've arranged to have a facility with them. But some people haven't arranged to have a facility with them. And so... They do go overdrawn and, and then they might get sent a note. The banks are kind of good now with their technology. You might get a notification, a text or, uh, or an email saying your account's overdrawn. But really, you shouldn't be relying on that notification from the bank. You should know what's in your bank account and what's not. And it just doesn't look very good from a bank's point of view that you're... I suppose doing something that you haven't you haven't requested to be able to do, so you're just like, oh, I don't care if I go overdrawn. The bank will send me a, a text message and I'll make sure I transfer some money from my savings account. No, you really just want to make sure that you're abiding by the rules, mm. say. And it it can sometimes it can only be a little amount, but it's just the fact that you're doing something that is outside what is yeah the rule for your account yeah such a good message because at the time when that happens the bank doesn't necessarily mind because they get to charge you a 20 30 dollar unarranged overdraft fee That's, so they're not uh, going to yeah. call you up and tell you off they're just yeah. going to charge you that send you the bill but in fact when it will count against you is later on when you go to apply for a mortgage potentially yes. yeah that's right and so sometimes too with that account conduct it's not just say they're going overdrawn as well it might be that you've got insufficient funds in your account so your automatic payment to your power company hasn't gone through and if you get um if, if you're looking through people's statements and they've got you know um unpaid you know uh, Genesis account and it just it's like can these people not manage their money and I think that's probably what a bank's looking at is can these people manage their money because if they can't manage it without a mortgage are they going to be able to manage then the mortgage payments and of course the last thing the bank wants you to do is fall behind in your mortgage payments so you really want to show to a bank that you're good at managing your money yeah is it okay bearing that in mind? You know, I, lo- I know a lot of people who run pretty close to the wind on their, say, their savings account because they're very good at when the money comes in from their paycheck, they, they distribute it to different savings accounts and a holiday account and this account. So they might run close to zero on their sort of everyday account, um, but they've got this other money set aside for certain things. Is that going to look okay to a bank, or do, you know, should you be trying to keep? you know a thousand dollars in your everyday account all the time no i don't i don't think so i think though what you need to make sure though is that although you might have money in other accounts it's your responsibility not the bank's responsibility but your responsibility to make sure you transfer money out of those accounts if you haven't got enough money in the account that's going to be paying your bills yeah so that's how i'd look at it uh, also, too, I think if you are, because uh, obviously banks look at your, it's good to have a savings account and it's good to see savings. But I remember seeing somebody's savings account where, like you said then, they got their pay, 
put their money into their accounts and let's say this one was like a hundred dollars every fortnight going into the savings account three days after the money going into the savings account they were drawing it back out again so it really didn't end up being a savings account at all it was like i'll put the money there so and then take it out straight away and i just kind of think in that case would they have been better off maybe only putting $50 in that account and that $50 staying in there for a long, long time and building up to a savings balance rather than putting money in there to only three days later draw it back out again because that, that's not really savings and that's not really putting money aside for savings. Yeah. So showing good, consistent conduct. I Definitely, yeah. And at the moment, the banks... Um, are reviewing your last three months bank statements but I can actually see that potentially because uh, the banks are cautious around um, lending at any time they might extend that out to six months so you know probably a good idea if you've got a good six months of good account conduct especially if you're yeah. on the edge of getting that approval like you say if you're a slightly what the bank would consider a one they want to take a closer look at, maybe you're going yeah. for a less than 20% deposit or That's right. maybe yeah. you've got, maybe you're self-employed or another variable like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, they are going to, you're exactly right. They should be making sure those last six months um, look good. Okay. So six months of good account conduct. Yes. Perfect. What's, what's next? Well, I, I suppose just, sorry, just going back on that still good account conduct is, um, so not only are the banks looking at the account conduct through that account now, in your um, bank account, they're actually looking at your expenditure as well. So quite often when people apply for um, mortgages, it's like, yeah, I'm spending a lot of money at the moment. I'm going out on a Friday and a Saturday night. And then I might go out for brunch on Sunday. You know, so you're doing all those things. But, oh, but I can like, stop doing that if I get I a mortgage. Can, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll stop doing that when I get a mortgage. Well, let's just think that six months or three months before you apply to get your mortgage, you're in training for your mortgage. So you're not going to be the, I'm going to stop that as soon as I get there. Let's prove to the bank that three months prior to you applying for your mortgage, you could stop those habits of all of your spending and just tone it back a little bit so you can be like, actually, I don't need to be expending as much as I am because the banks are looking more at what your actual expenditure is. And the only way they can look at that is by looking at your your previous statements so, so yeah I, would you say one option there would be to you know I, I feel like if I was not if I was in that situation I would work out okay this is the kind of house I'm trying to buy this is what the mortgage payments would be this is how much rent I pay currently if that's below how much the mortgage would be then you, you'd try and set aside the difference Correct. each week yes. to kind of prepare yourself for okay this much money is going to go out each week once I have this mortgage yes. I'm hoping to get why don't I start that now and, and start getting used to that uh, if that does mean that um, my lifestyle has to be scaled back slightly yeah it does and, and and when I talk about kind of scaling back 
you know what what your expenditure is don't get me wrong i'm not saying like don't have a life and don't be happy and don't have enjoyment i'm just saying that maybe you don't need as much of that if you're preparing to get a mortgage and I'm sure I, I, you've seen some, some good levels of expenditure over the years. Yeah, that's right. And I, I always say to clients too, if, if you get a mortgage and you can't, after that, afford your favourite takeaway once a week or you can't go out to the movies, well, maybe that mortgage level is too high because I, I, I'm a strong believer in you still need to have a life as well. Um, but it... it, it it is, it is apparent sometimes when you look at people when they are. They're, they're going out all the time. And it's the, it is the for all of us, that discretionary spending where we kind of lose the most control, for want of a better word. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, you're right. I think that's a good philosophy that you had there if you, if you calculate potentially what your mortgage payments are, if they're lower than what you're currently paying in rent, yeah, save that difference. And then we can show to the bank, look, look how great they are. Yeah. Next up on your list. Next up on my list, uh, let's talk about income. Cool. So uh, obviously with income, banks are looking at if you're a salaried employee, job stability always helps. If you've changed jobs every three months for the last couple of years, a bank might be, what? what's going on here? Why? Is it, perhaps it might be the industry um, you're in. Sometimes industries, the people do change jobs a lot because they're learning different things. Um, however, generally, as a general rule, you, most people are in their jobs for, you know, at least a year if not um, longer and I think it's it, it always helps a loan application if you can say look they've got job stability they've been in this role for you know four or five years they're not moving around they're obviously employable they're obviously good um, at what their job is uh, often people with their income they might receive bonuses or commissions the bank doesn't use all of that bonus and commission um, as part of your income. They, all of the banks have different policies, but just be aware that they won't use all of that and they might average it over the last uh, couple of years. They may only use 50% of it. So in terms of... It's obviously good for you to have um, because it increases your income, but... All of that might not be relied upon in terms of applying um, that's for really, mortgage. That's really yeah. useful to know, and it might be important to factor in if you think buying a home is in your very near future and you're negotiating whether your role is more salary-based or more commission-based, then that's definitely something to take into account. Absolutely. You might choose a little bit more salary, um, yeah, if it's going to get you, yeah, the, help you improve your chances of getting your um, finance approved. What about if you're switching to being a contractor? You know, say you're, you're, even if you're staying in the same industry, but you've been doing a role for a long time and you're looking at going contracting uh, to do potentially that same job, but just to earn more money, which is usually the, the reasoning behind it. What sort of effect does that have on? Well, contractors are viewed as being self-employed. Um, so as a general rule, uh, with self-employed, a, a banks look at your last two years' financial accounts 
and it, they'd average those last two years. Contracting can be slightly different, especially if you have, like you say, you're contracting in the same industry where you had been a salaried employee. You might even be contracting to exactly the same um, company where you had been working as an employee, which happens a lot. But still, it, it still have contracting has an element of risk. And, and because of that element of risk, like you say, you might get paid more than what you would as being a salaried employee. And so it depends on the, it's a grey area, so I don't want to say a black and white answer here, but it is a grey area, the contracting, but certainly, you know, now talking about potentially being self-employed, you are looking at the last two years' um, financial accounts. So say, for example, if you were a painter and you'd been working for somebody for wages and you decided to set up your own business as a painter and you'd only been doing it for three months, you, you can't uh, apply for a mortgage. That Well, you can, but a bank's not going to rely on you. Your chances are pretty slim. Because Even if you're earning the same money... Yeah, week to week or a little bit more even because mm. a bank wants to see a track record right. and they want to see sustainability of income going forward in the future uh, and we need to be able to prove that sustainability and so proving that sustainability is by using historical data but so obviously then the longer you are self-employed the more we're saying look how sustainable it is You've been a self-employed painter for, say, 10 years. You Obviously, we can see that you've been able to consistently earn, earn an income. So, yeah. On that contracting note, uh, a point that I thought was interesting was the bank will take your income after all your expenses. So one of the nice things about becoming a contractor is you can often claim certain expenses. You might claim, you know, home office expenses or... Um, you know, the, the brand new ute that you've just brought if you're a, a tradie. Uh, so it's fun being able to sort of put these things against the business, but it will affect your income in, in the eyes of the bank. Uh, you can't take your, your, your gross income and use that for a mortgage application. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So definitely, if you're self-employed, the bank's going to look at what we refer to as your taxable income. So your income after your expenses. So yeah, very important if you're... Um, applying um, for finance that you you want to you want to keep your expenses pretty lean uh, that that would be my response um, to that so yeah good advice uh, so another one that I thought was really interesting on this list this is a, a bit of a segue into into um, saving and, and debts and things which is probably the next sort of area to talk about but um, while it's one that you had written down there was while it's good to pay off all your debt you should try and have a savings record as well so potentially while you're paying off your debt have a even if it's a small amount have a savings account set up and regularly contribute to that absolutely which is kind of slightly counterintuitive because some people would say put all the money you can into getting your debt down as quickly as possible but your comment is that in the eyes of the bank having that savings record can be really helpful yeah, it can be. I remember one time, a, a, a long time ago actually, where some people had come to see me and they had very little deposit. But they were like, but Jenny, we've paid like $20,000 off of debts that we had over the last 12 months. 
but that that didn't help their application because they still had they didn't have enough money for a deposit. So you kind of need the both to go a little bit hand in hand because you still actually need that deposit to be able to buy a house. So if you if you have the ability to be able to save, keep your KiwiSaver going, keep up your payments on your short-term debt, it, it is going to help if you do want to buy sooner. Otherwise, yeah, you could spend 12 months paying off your debt, but then you might have to then spend another 12 months saving up your deposit for your house. Yeah. Makes sense. But on the uh, topic of short-term debt... I know it's very attractive. There's advertisements all the time trying to entice you in to get deferred payments, to get interest free, to basically have it now before you've actually got the resources yourself to actually have it. And when when clients have got a lot of short-term debt, unfortunately, what what picture that shows to a, a bank is I have to have these things before I've actually got the money to be able to have them. And I understand that every now and again your washing machine might break down and you haven't got the money for a washing machine. You get it on higher purchase. Some things like that are, are going to have to happen. But if you need the latest iPhone... If it's a 50-inch TV and couches. And... That's right. You have to ask yourself the question, it really, is is that is that going to help my chances of actually getting a loan approved? Do, do I really need it? So I suppose it's really, is that whole want and need, isn't it? And I think if you're wanting to get, get a mortgage, buy a house, you actually have to think about, I'm only going to buy what I need, not actually what I want. And then that hopefully will minimise the short-term debts. Uh, it's the, those two words, delayed gratification. I just love so much. Yeah. <laughs> Get used to having delayed gratification. That's right. The, the house is this massive amount of delayed gratification. The, the big flash TV on a higher purchase plan is instant gratification. That's right, yeah. The deferred payment plans are always so tempting because you might say, well, look, I, I can afford that, but you've got to look at what long-term uh, effect that might have That's right. on your ability to do bigger, yeah. bigger, important things. Yeah. And some of the short-term finance, I was horrified the other day. I noticed the interest rate on this person's short-term finance. It was like 29%. I'm like, seriously, can somebody actually charge that at the moment? But it was there in black and white. Um and I think that's the, yeah, you just have to be very, very conscious. You might be on something that's at 0% interest now. And if you don't pay it off by the time that period finishes, you could be paying a higher rate. Um, so think... just something to be very conscious of, especially when things can change so quickly with your own circumstances. And you might think, oh, if I get this deferred payment that's fine because in three years I know I'll be in this position and I'll be able to do it but what if in that three years you're not in that position uh, so yeah I'd, consumer debt is um, 
it's something just to be very cautious of yeah well on a note on that i recommend watching out for is when you look at these deferred payment plans and it'll say you know interest rate interest free for 12 months 24 months 36 months while that looks appealing and is appealing what they often don't tell you until you get to the point where you're signing up is that there's an admin fee of 150 dollars to buy this uh, stereo or this tv or this fridge and if you extrapolate that 150 dollars out over the debt it actually works out you are essentially paying interest it's just lumped into this one little payment at the start which they just chuck on the debt anyway so um, they have ways of making sure you they get a return out of you whether it's an interest rate or some other way of achieving that yeah and i i suppose then like going back to the start when we of this discussion about talking about getting yourself prepared is if you think you're 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 getting yourself prepared to get your mortgage application looking beautiful and if you if you if you're pitching that starting six months back then really think over the six months what do I actually need and what do I want and just go with what you actually need yeah Visit some open homes if you need to keep the goal in mind as well. You know, rather than going to Harvey Norman's, go to a, go yeah, to a few open homes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good good thought. So, on the subject of debt, uh, a lot of people see credit cards as, as a target rather than a kind of emergency fund. Uh, so, and a lot of people go on holiday and they fund it on credit cards. Um, you've got a good rule that you've told me plenty of times before, which is to to not go on holiday if it's going to be all on the credit card. Yeah. Do you find yourself still saying that to people a lot? Oh, absolutely. I, to be honest, I, I can't actually, I can't uh, comprehend myself how enjoyable it could be to go on a holiday using your credit card and then come back, especially if you went away in winter time and you went somewhere warm and you came back and it was still winter and you've got this debt that you're repaying through winter on a I don't know. I just to me, I I can't get my head around the enjoyment that you would have that that you would have on your holiday, knowing that you're just going to come back to debt, and would that holiday not feel much more pleasurable if you'd waited a year and actually used the money that you had saved to pay for that holiday and then come back debt free? Comes yeah. back to the idea of chasing instant gratification, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. One last question on the debt subject. What about student loans? So if you have a interest-free student loan while you're in New Zealand, uh, should you pay that off? Should you leave it? If that's an interest-free debt, are you better off to just forget about that and just keep building up your deposit rather than trying to pay that off? Okay, so with the student loan, the everybody has them basically I rarely do I come across somebody who hasn't got a student loan so they're very common I don't think anyone should be embarrassed about having a student loan nobody should ever feel embarrassed about the level of their student loan because it depends what it depends what degree they've done some people that have trained to be doctors have quite large student loans It, it, it is just the the nature of the course and banks don't necessarily look at what is outstanding on your student loan. What they're looking at is what percentage of your income that that's taking as a repayment um, out of your income. So therefore then that money can't be used 
towards paying your mortgage. So what I'm trying to say here is if you've got a student loan, it reduces your borrowing capacity. And because it is a percentage of your income, the more you earn, the higher percentage, the higher amount is coming out of your pay on a on a regular basis to pay off the student loan. So, you know, so it can take up quite a bit, which can really diminish how much you can afford to um, borrow. Sometimes, and I and I just want to strongly say sometimes, if people have got student loans that are relatively low, and by relatively low I mean probably like maybe under ten or under five thousand dollars, that they might be more benefited by paying that outstanding balance off, meaning they can achieve the house that they want by being able to borrow more money. Um, Just because it improves their cash flow. Because it improves their cash flow, yes. And I understand that student loans are interest-free, but when you're talking of somebody only only owes two or $3,000 on their student loan, it, it, it can sometimes make an enormous difference to how much somebody can borrow, whether that student loan's there or not. Um, but one thing I do say to clients is, especially student loans or any other short-term debt, we can get you approved subject to that debt being repaid. So I'm not saying when I see you initially, straight away go out and pay that debt, that's not what I'm saying. But... That's something to just have in the back of their mind that that might be something you look to do. And we can get an approval conditional on that debt being um, being repaid to you. So my thinking on that would be uh, the advice there is if, if clients are meeting with you, then, then a great thing to know is what your student loan balance is in yes. advance for that many. So it can be discussed. Yes. Just know what it is. You don't yeah. have to decide what you do with it yet. Just, yes. just know and where I mean, it stands. Yeah, and um, I remember seeing somebody once and they were like, but I don't want to know what it is. And I'm just like, I'm really sorry, I need the amount for the form. And they literally had just blocked it out of their mind like the money came out of their um, pay before they even received their pay. And so they had no idea at all. Um, I can understand yeah. that feeling if you've been, you know, if it's if it's something that you've had to just work through for years, and you know, it's yes. been a long, feels like a long time since you completed your degree. Then you yeah. can understand that approach. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but yeah, it, be rest assured, everyone, everybody has them. Mm. Cool. I think we've got one last tip here, which is uh, titled "Income is Everything." What do you mean by "income is everything," Jenny? What I mean by income is everything, and actually this, it, I've, I've had this happen quite a few times um, over the last uh, few months, is that you could have an enormous amount of equity in your property, mm-hmm. you could have lots of investments, uh, you could have lots of money in the bank, uh, but if you don't meet the bank's income servicing test, you will not be able to get the finance approved. Even um, if it's a fairly low, like even if it's, even if it's 30% of the purchase yeah. price. or Even if it's 10% of the purchase price, if yeah. you can't prove an income to service the amount of um, debt that you want, then it won't get approved. Uh, and the reason why is because 
a bank is, and nor should any finance financier put anyone into a position where they can't afford to make mortgage payments. And so even though you might say, but I know my income doesn't show enough, but I've got $50,000 in the bank that could make the mortgage payments for the next six months, so I don't need to worry that my income's lower at the moment. A bank won't look at it that way. Especially one thing too is you might think, my plan is that I won't use that 50000 but the bank hasn't got any control over what you do with that 50000 So the next day, you could go out and buy a brand new car with that money. So they have no control over that. And that is, you know, that's in their thought process as well. So yes, you could have a lot of, um, we call it um, asset rich and cash flow poor. And there, there are a lot of asset rich people. And that's great. It's fantastic you've put yourself in a position where you might have a lot of assets and nominal or no debt at all but if you're applying for finance you need to be able to meet the bank's income servicing test so we need that um, income there yeah it's a really important point and a good one that you make about you know I can so imagine that being the defense that hey well I've got 50,000 in this smart shares account I can pull it out anytime I want and pay the mortgage but the bank doesn't know that you're going to stick with that money you could exactly like you say you could go and use that to buy a new tesla or you could or the 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 price of those shares could drop dramatically and that money could disappear even without your um, influence whatsoever yeah that's right and 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 we've all got a duty of care to not put people into financial situations um financial positions that are going to put them under undue hardship and so that is where we need we need the income. How much difference does potential income from a border make or, or, or from any sort of rent you're going to receive from the property? How much does that factor into their sort of income calculations? It does factor in, well obviously it factors in significantly if you're buying an investment property um, because most people can't afford to buy an investment property without factoring in um, rental income. In terms of borders, the the banks, they will include border income, but there's quite a few restrictions around that. And there's also restrictions on how many borders that they will take into account. So you might have bought a five-bedroom house and be renting out four of the bedrooms, but a lender might only include two of those borders because that is their policy. And... I've always been of the view of if you are reliant on renting out rooms so you can pay your mortgage, then you have to wonder, are you extending yourself just that little bit uh, too much? Especially when interest rates are so low right now, and while they might stay that way, they could go up as well. And so it would seem smart to be prepared for a situation where interest rates were 2% higher or 3% higher and could you handle that if that that happened yeah definitely actually going back to if we'll go back to when I started in 1997 just to horrify everybody um, (laughs) the floating rate I was still at college (laughs) (laughs) the floating rate was 12% the fixed interest rates were double figures and I remember not long um, after uh, I had started, uh, 
the interest rates started to fall and somebody saying to me, gosh, any interest rate in single figures is a good rate. And like we're talking like 9.5%. So, I mean, sure, it's a long time ago, but if, if interest rates had been high, yeah. I remember even when we brought our first time in 2009, the rate was 8 or 9%. And that's not that long ago. It doesn't that's feel right. that long ago to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, it's only 11 years. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, for people buying now, that can seem you know, just just unheard of that you'll pay those sort of rates. But we're just here to remind you that it is possible and, and rates do change. So yes. don't overextend yourself. Yeah, and actually a good point with the interest rates is that, and I'm not going to go into each individual bank's um, income servicing test, but because each individual bank has an income servicing test, they use test rates. So they use rates that are higher than the interest rate than what interest rates are now because they're building um, a bit of fat in there and to make sure that you can afford it if the interest rates were higher so I know oh, I get a lot of people say but I've worked out the payments and I can do it but it's like yeah that your there's a difference between your calculation and the bank's calculation so just something to bear in mind and I think to you know being prudent Using the lowest rate in the market at the moment, I don't think it's a good idea in terms of calculating your payments. Go on to Sorted. That's where I um, normally do my mortgage calculations. Sorted.org.nz. And put in some higher rates. Put in 5% and see what it comes out at. Because the interest rates not that long ago were 5%. And, you know, make sure you're comfortable kind of at those levels. And in a perfect well. world, you'd, you'd even take on a, a level of mortgage debt which allowed you to pay the balance off quicker than in the standard 30 years. You know, you, yes, ideally you'd want right. to um, use this time with low interest rates to say, okay, well, I'm going to put my mortgage on a 20-year plan or a 25-year plan and try and smash it out quicker That's than, right. than yeah. just borrowing the absolute max that you can. Mm, mm. Two little questions just to tie off those previous subjects we were talking about. On the subject of border income, how do you ascertain what you could you rent a room for and how do you show the bank that like do do you just look on Traby and say okay well a room in Mount Victoria is renting for 200 a week or do you need to take a letter to the bank from a friend of yours saying I agree to rent Jenny's room in her house when she buys it how do you get get through that yep the latter is the case Andrew so yes all of the uh, lenders they want and uh, it's unfortunate because it's that chicken and egg thing because sometimes I when I one day buy like, a house <laughs> yeah I don't I, I can't get my border I don't know who's going to board with me until I actually find the house. But the banks do want a letter from somebody that is saying, yes, when you buy a house, I'm going to um, board with you. And the with that, the, the, the way people end up getting boarders is that we might all be flatting together. There might be, you know, three of us in a flat. And I say, Andrew, I'm going to go and buy a house. And you're like, Jenny, I'll come with you. When you buy the house, I'll come and flat with you as well. And so that's the way we can get the letter because you've already got these people that you're already basically living with that are going to go along with you. Perfect. And on the subject of the asset-rich cash-poor buyer, um, I presume if, if 
people were really you know short on income but they only wanted to borrow a small amount of the of the value of the property they could look at a second tier lender or something yeah, along absolutely. those lines if they, if they the, the are, there are options um for people yeah but it just wouldn't it wouldn't be through a mainstream um, bank but there's there's definitely options so as, if you're listening and you think these i can't do anything look just get in contact there's there, there could be options yeah, definitely. Perfect. I just want to go back to, I was just thinking then when I said, go on to sort it and use a rate of 5%. That 5% is just a number I just plucked out of the sky. You could put in any interest rate um, that you want to because obviously, like we said before, back in uh, 1997, uh, the floating rate was 12%. So, yeah. Be ready for anything. Be ready for anything, yeah. That- and I think just to on interest rates, I've had a few people... Who've contacted me? This is slightly going off tangent. Where they've locked into to fixed rates, and you know, the rate might be lower now. It's like reflect back on the thought that you put into that, that you made a decision at the time that you felt comfortable with, and you just kind of have to live through it. Yeah, we talked about this last time we caught up, and I think it's such a good point. The time when you should worry about interest rates is when it's time to renew. Yeah, <laughs> that's the only time that it matters. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Hey, yeah, Jenny, that is an awesome amount of info and I'm really excited to share that out to all our listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time to jump in the studio and on this beautiful sunny day and, and record all those tips. You know, it's been really good and I really do appreciate, Andrew, you getting me in to talk about this. I think information is key. Knowledge is key. If you want to find out more information, if you want help, then, yeah, just get in contact and um, we're here to help. So I'll put Jenny's contact details in the show notes uh, and you can also just Google her as well. You can find her on Facebook. Uh, what's your phone number? Just quickly, just in case someone's going to give you a call straight away. Yeah, it is uh, 027-244-6686. Perfect. Thanks, Jenny. And thank you everyone for listening in. The goal of this podcast is to make it easy for people to find the information they need uh, to make better decisions. That's what it's all about. If you found this information useful, we would really, really appreciate it if you could jump online and give the podcast a review. The easiest way to do that is if you listen to it through Apple Podcasts, you can jump on there and and go to the show itself and give it a review. Um, Or just on Facebook or Google is awesome as well. And I'll put links to those in the show notes. Thank you so much for your help. It would mean a lot to me if you were able to go and give it a review. And uh, thank you so much for listening in. Bye.